Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. This episode is airing on Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023. Hello, everyone. It's Shannon back with another Tuesday morning episode. I apologize for the bit of a break we had. We had some difficulties with the website that hosts the podcast, but things do seem to be back up and running. And so here we are. So getting into this week's episode... Today, I am sharing an interview with author Chanel Clayton. You probably remember her. She's been here quite a few times now. It's becoming a yearly tradition for each of her releases, and I love it so much. But we're talking about her latest novel, The Cuban Heiress, which was released a few a few weeks ago. And then, of course, I have um, a look at some of this week's new releases. So we've got the usual housekeeping information, and then we'll get right into it. You can find us on Facebook by searching for the Book Bistro podcast. Once there, you can post to our timeline. You can also message us privately. If you want a more social interaction, you can join our Facebook listener group, which is pretty quiet at the moment, though we are looking at some ways of possibly revamping it. If Facebook is not your thing and you still would like to hang out with us, check us out on our WhatsApp group. You can subscribe to that either by messaging us through Facebook or by sending us an email, and one of us will be happy to add you. If you're looking to get a hold of us via email, you can do that by contacting the Book Bistro Podcast at gmail.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro podcast. This is Shannon, and today I am once again joined by author Chanel Clayton. This time we are discussing her latest novel, The Cuban Heiress, which released here in the U.S. on April 11th. So we are recording this just a couple of days post-publication. Chanel, welcome back to Book Bistro. I'm so glad to have you once again. Thank you so much for having me. I always have such a great time when I'm here and I'm I'm so thrilled to chat with you. All right. So I'm guessing you've done this a bunch of times already today, but can we start with a brief introduction to the Cuban heiress so that listeners have a bit of an idea what to expect? Of course. So the Cuban heiress is set in 1934 and it is inspired by the true story of the SS Morro Castle. That was a luxury cruise ship that would sail on a round trip voyage from New York to Havana. And on its final voyage, tragically, it caught fire. And so I really wanted to to explore what it would have been like to be on the ship for, for my two fictional characters, Elena and Catherine. And I was really just inspired by a lot of the natural mystery and, and drama that sort of surrounded the, the ship's final voyage. To this day, they don't know you know exactly what caused the fire. There have been lots of investigations and there are certainly prevailing theories but I, I found it to be just a really fascinating event that I, I was not familiar with until I, I first started reading about it and decided to write about it. So it was an, a very interesting journey for me to go on as an author working on this novel. It's 
hard to think of anything more terrifying than being stuck like in the ocean on a burning ship because no matter what you do like something bad is going to happen you're either going to escape into the ocean which you know probably isn't the safest or you're going to you know burn on a boat um that that's just i can't think of anything that's quite as terrifying as that Yes, it was definitely a very perilous situation, and it was exacerbated by a few factors. Um, One was that the captain, who was very experienced, actually died a few hours before the fire broke out. He died aboard the ship. And so there was already kind of a panic that, you know, they'd lost the captain who was at the helm typically. And then also the weather conditions were really bad. So they were caught between a nor'easter and a hurricane. And so it was kind of this horrible convergence of of events that made it um, a really... A really difficult situation. It was the last night of the ship on the fire of the cruise when the fire broke out on the ship. And a lot of people, it was kind of the middle of the night. A lot of people were still partying. Some people were sleeping. Um, and honestly, you know, you say about what a scary experience it would have been, you know, a lot of the safety standards that we see now on modern cruise ships stemmed from, you know, what we learned from this disaster and, and wanting to prevent something like this from happening again. So my mom goes on quite a few cruises and she's always talking about, you know, the things that you're not allowed to bring aboard ship because they're fire hazards. Mm -hmm. And I just kept thinking about that, you know, as I was reading your book, like now we know what is likely to cause a fire. I mean, obviously things happen that we don't know about, but we have more knowledge of these things than they would have in 1934. That is true. And there's, you know, definitely still an open question over whether the fire was intentional or not. Um, so the fire broke out in the writing room of the ship in kind of the, the middle of the night. But there is, are certainly very strong theories that that it was an act of arson. So that that is something, you know, that still is unsettled. But definitely the, the materials they used to build the ship, you know, the fact that so much of the deck was wood and mm-hmm. it's one of those ships that they, because it was a luxury cruise liner, they constantly were repainting things and touching things up on deck that got damaged. And, you know, some of the lifeboats ended up being painted so they couldn't release like they were supposed to. Um, they didn't do muster drills. Like when you go on a modern cruise now... And you do that muster drill where you all kind of see what you would do in the event of a, uh, an evacuation or an emergency that didn't exist back then. And a lot of it, that, like I said, is, is a response to this tragedy. It just seems to be a problem with lifeboats and um, like sort of luxurious voyages because, you know, there weren't enough lifeboats in the Titanic mm-hmm. and there were problems with lifeboats here. No, it it was interesting. It was kind of difficult to not see the parallels, you know, between the two ships because they were relatively close together in the time period. And um, yes, definitely seeing kind of, unfortunately, when you talk about maritime disasters, you know, those two obviously being ones that, that come to mind. So we're really aware of the Titanic, like that is sort of built into the fabric of our history. And yet we don't know I'd, I'd never heard of this until I read the blurb um, for your novel. Like, it's not something that we're taught. And I feel like I say this to you pretty much every time we talk that like Cuban history and history involving, um, you know, even if something doesn't take place directly in Cuba, things that are somehow related to that part of the world, like we just don't, we don't learn about. 
No, it was, it was very interesting to me, you know, because like I said, I, I wasn't familiar with it before I, I started writing about it. The first time I heard about it was when I was writing Our Last Days in Barcelona, which was the book I published right before this one. Yes. Uh, that one was set in, in the 1930s. And often when I'm writing a book in a particular time period, I like to just make sure that there's nothing, you know, going on in the world that maybe isn't germane to the story necessarily, but would have had an impact on my character's lives. So I like to kind of look at surrounding events that were impactful. And I came across this mention of the Moro Castle. And that's when I was really so fascinated because at the time that the ship caught fire, you know, it was a major story in the United States and in Cuba. And there was a, a great deal of attention, but you're right. It, it sort of, as time has gone on, you know, we've heard less and less and then it's it's sort of been um, lesser known at this point, even though it is a relatively recent history. I mean, if you're talking about the 1930s, it's not like it was that long ago. Um, there have been some nonfiction books written about the subject and you know some some other things written about it. There were the investigations, obviously, that that really delved into what happened. But it was it was fascinating to me. I, I also take a lot of cruises. I, I've enjoyed cruising in the past, and so you know, just seeing that connection between the legacy of this ship and, and what has been done, kind of for modern safety standards, was really interesting to me. So I'm guessing that a lot of the investigations and nonfiction sort of helped you to form kind of the the backbone of your novel like not so much your characters but the setting of the ship absolutely so it was really important to me that the the storyline followed the itinerary of the ship so basically when you open the first chapter of the book you are boarding the ship with my two heroines who are fictional heroines elena and Catherine, and you follow the itinerary that the ship took and so for the plot you know it was very important that if that meant you know X day was a sea day, then that was the day that my characters are on sea. If this is the day that they were in Port in Havana, you know, my characters were going to go off the boat and, and have an experience in, in the city. And so that itinerary very much drove the storyline for me. At the same time, you know, I, I wanted to write fictional characters, you know, in part because I'm cognizant of the fact that real people lived through these events and I don't want to feel like I'm telling their story. And also just kind of having the creative um, opportunity to to give life and, and breath to these characters that I've created. And so I really crafted Elena and Catherine. You know, they very much have very strong agendas for why they're on the ship. And they both have a lot of secrets in their backstory. And you kind of see their lives intertwine and play out aboard the Morrow Castle. And I just wanted to make sure, you know, that their experiences were authentic to what it would have been like on the ship at the time, that anything that happened was historically possible in terms of, you know, you mentioned if you're on a, a burning ship at sea, you know, how would you evacuate? And so I looked at some of the different, you know, experiences that people had in terms of evacuation measures and, and what that kind of looked like, or when did the fire break out? What were the weather conditions like with that? And how would that influence, you know, where you would be on deck and what you would be experiencing? Um, it was a similar process in some ways to my book, The Last Train to Key West, which I wrote, which is about the 1935 Labor yes. Day hurricane, where I was working on a similar, you know, timeline where you have all these external factors that are very strongly um, influencing the plot. And also you have this very short timeline. For that book, it was over a weekend. For this book, it's it's a week-long itinerary. So it was um, a very interesting creative process from that perspective. And then also having written a few books set in the 1930s, I felt like it was really helpful to kind of take all that I've learned and all the research and sort of put it together to have an overarching understanding of the political, economic, and social conditions, you know, that would have influenced life on the ship in different ways. 
So this is your first book that doesn't focus on the Perez family. Yes. Um, yes. At least not your first book total because you've written like some romance and stuff prior to your Perez family books. But this is your first sort of historical fiction mm-hmm. um, that doesn't focus on on those characters. How was it for you to actually be creating characters that weren't associated with that family that like, you know, you didn't have kind of the the family tree and the the mm-hmm. timeline that had been built by the other books that you've written? It was really interesting for me. You know, part of it came from, and it, at the time I wrote Our, Lays, Our Last Days in Barcelona, which came out last year, I didn't necessarily know this, but when I got to the end of the book, I just felt like I'd sort of left the Perez family at a moment that felt like they'd come very full circle. It felt um, like there had been a lot of growth. I understood the characters a lot better. I really felt like I was in a very good place to kind of let the family kind of go off for a moment and, and to maybe explore mm-hmm. something new. And so... With the Cuban heiress, I just thought about, you know, what it would be like to to be introduced to completely new characters. Because when I, I drafted Our Last Days in Barcelona, you know, there were still surprises and there always are. But I had been working with those characters for years. And so there was kind of that at least background understanding of them. And with this book, it was completely uncharted for me because these were new characters. And so there was something that I really enjoyed creatively about that. And also, I think for my readers, you know, it's nice to have different entry points into these books. You know, I know while all of the Press family books can be read as standalones, you know, I know it it can be daunting. There are a lot of books to read and there's a lot of books about the family. And so I wanted to kind of give an opportunity for readers to to pick up a standalone and just kind of take this voyage for the week and and feel like they were meeting some new faces and and learning about a new event in Cuban-American history. I would say as someone who has read um, all of the Perez books and mostly, you know, have read them in order kind of as they've come out, Mm -hmm. I feel like though you could easily, you know, say start with The Last Train to Key West and then go back Mm -hmm. and read, you know, the other two or go forward and then go back. Um, I feel like the, the timeline how do I say, like the plot of one book doesn't hinge on the rest in a way that makes it feel like, oh, you know, if I don't read this in order, like something, you know, I'm going to miss some Mm -hmm. key things. No, and that was definitely very important to me. You know, I like that it's kind of a connected family story and you get to follow this family through different moments in history. But if you pick them up in the 1930s or you pick them up in 1898, you know, you can kind of jump in at any moment and then go forward or back as, as you like. I know historical fiction readers, I think often have favorite time periods. And so I understand, you know, some people might prefer one time period over another. And and so having that opportunity to kind of look at the, the timeline of Cuban American history, I think is, is really fun for readers. I hope. Speaking of that, did you have a favorite time period? Like you said, you've written, you know, a few books set in the 1930s. Um, but is there a time period that you feel especially drawn to, or would that be it? You know, I don't think I have a necessarily like favorite time period. I I think I'm drawn to learning new things. You know, I spend so much time researching and writing and then talking about these books that it's that initial spark of curiosity that really carries me through um, the whole process. And so it's really when I seize on an event or a moment in history that I'm not as familiar with, it just kind of grabs me and I can't always explain what it is, um, but I always know when I when I see it that then I'm like, okay, this is what I want to write about. So I'm, I'm very happy kind of moving in 
different time periods. And it's just sort of by coincidence and circumstance that I have ended up writing, you know, so many books in the 1930s. But I will say there is something nice about that because you do, you know, all the research you do for other books, it's a little hard sometimes doing a ton of like 1950s research and then going to 1898, you know, you're, you're moving around quite a bit. So it's nice when you feel like all the research kind of lends to each other and, and it kind of builds a, a greater understanding of the world that your characters are living in. So do you have an idea of kind of what's coming next for you? Are we um, still kind of staying with, with new characters? Are we revisiting some characters that we've seen before? So we are going to meet some new characters. I am currently editing my 2024 release, um, and it is also a standalone. It's in kind of a similar suspense vein to, to what I did with the Cuban Eras. It has a really strong Gothic feel, and it's dual Ooh. timelines. Uh, yes, it's been it's been a lot of fun to work on. It's uh, dual timelines with a Cuban heroine and an American heroine, and it's set in Miami, um, kind of during the time period where Miami is really starting to be developed and you see like these huge mansions propping up and um, kind of the beginnings of the real estate boom in Miami um, at the kind of like 1917 time period. And there's a mystery that threads through both time periods that that centers on this house. So it's been a really interesting project to work on. I'm really, really excited to share it with my readers. And like I said, it'll be out next year. I keep hearing people talk about 2024 and it's just so crazy to me. Like, I know, <laughs> you know, 2020 seemed like it took forever and the whole, you know, 2021, mm -hmm. like those two years felt like about a decade. Mm -hmm. And now suddenly we're like zooming ahead. Um, and, you know, people are already thinking about books coming out in 2024 yes. and 2025. No, and, and it is interesting as an author, you know, I, I say this often when I do my interviews, but it is kind of mentally a little bit of, you know, something where you have to kind of flip your mindset because I'm often drafting one book, editing one book, and then promoting a book and, you know, publishing kind of works years ahead. So it is, I mean, I'm already thinking about what I'm going to write for 2025 and I'm editing 2024 and talking about the book I wrote in, I guess, 2022. So yes, it's a little bit, um, definitely you're kind of always in a different calendar moment with with publishing is it ever kind of overwhelming like having so many balls in the air at the same time yes <laughs> um, so it is no I, I will I will totally be honest it is uh, doing a book a year especially with historical fiction um, it, it is aggressive in terms of there's so much research that you're doing I mean there are other you know, genres that do like three books a year. And when I wrote romance, I would do that. And I, I now looking back, I'm in awe because three books a year is, is challenging. So I am by no means, you know, writing as much as, as some other people do, but it is at times, you know, challenging doing a book a year, I think, and just kind of multitasking, but you, you get comfortable with it, I think, and you learn kind of your process and, and what works. And I know, for example, you know, I have edits that came in about a week ago um, for my 2024 book. And so I knew like, okay, this is going to be your focus. And, you know, obviously I'm doing a lot of promotion for the Cuban heiress. And then work-wise, I'm going to really focus on my 2024 edits. And then as soon as I turn those into my editor, you know, then we start brainstorming what's next. So it's kind of, you build almost a calendar and I'm on a very similar publication schedule where my books typically come out like late spring, early summer. So it's kind of useful yes, they to like do. build out that way. Yes. <laughs> so I know what I'm supposed to be doing and when I'm supposed to be doing it. 
I was just thinking before we did this interview, I was making lunch and I was thinking like, okay, the chicken and the potatoes have to be done at roughly the same time. And then I have to eat this before, you know, about 10 to one so that I get ready for the interview. And I'm thinking that's like a relatively small um, thing to try to juggle, never mind things that like affect me years in advance. But that's a great, no, but that's a really great way to describe it. Cause that really is like, you know, like, okay, you know, I need to give cover notes by this day and I need to do this. So that's exactly what it's like. Um, but you know, it's, it's the fun part of the business. Every day is something different and you're always kind of changing things up. And, and I like that part. It's, it's both challenging and an opportunity. So with as busy as you are with all of your, um, writing and and editing and promoting, have you had the chance to read anything fantastic that you think the world should know about? So I I have a few things. I am actually right now, I just started an arc of um, The Measure of Silence by Elizabeth Langston. She's a friend from very long time ago. We started off in publishing together and she has a historical fiction book coming out this summer about the Kennedy assassination. It's a dual timeline that's partially set in the 1960s and it's, I just started it, but I'm, I'm really enjoying it and so grateful to, to have the opportunity to read an early copy. And then I also read The Siren of Sussex by Mimi Matthews and that yes. was amazing. We have the same agent and I sent my agent like a gushing fangirl email because I loved it so much. I was like, oh my goodness, like I had no idea. Um, I had it on my TBR and I just picked it up one night and I, I think I read it one sitting because it was just phenomenal um so yeah I'm, I'm really her. fortunate oh I'm see this is the first one I've read and now I'm like I saw her backlist and I was like oh good I'm like sold I can you know I have so many books to read now so I'm super excited to, to delve into her backlist and I think actually she is the first person to talk to me about 20, 2024 and 2025 oh, um, okay I think when I asked her, because um, she was on in the fall for um, the Bell of Belgrave Square, Square. I've heard that's phenomenal. My agent told it me, is. she was like, wait till you read it that is. one. So I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I'm really excited. And I think she's the first person to say like, oh, yeah, you know, not only do I know kind of what's coming out in 2023, but, you know, I'm working on things for 24 and 25. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's far in advance. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm excited. That means I have I have more books to look forward to from her. So that's awesome. Oh yeah. And she has just a huge, huge backlist. Um, you know, just all kinds of of historical romance. Um, a lot of like really cool, like Victorian era things that, you know, I I think are are pretty excellent. I feel like people they're like people either write Victorian era like really well mm-hmm. or really not well and I feel like she totally nails like everything about that that era mm-hmm. no I, I everything about the book was just incredible I I really really loved it it was it was a joy I do have to tell you that you, my early copy of this book was the audio and I am in love with Frankie Corzo. Like she is just so excellent. Yes. She, I have been so fortunate. She's done a few of my books now and it's always such an honor. She is amazing. Yes. I like her a lot. I feel like you get to know, kind of not know them as people, but you just get so intimately familiar with their voices after listening to them read you know, so many books over the years. Mm-hmm. And there are just always narrators that 
you know, I'm super happy to hear. And then other words, I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I, I recognize this person. That's cool. But Frankie Corzo, I think is one of the sort of up and coming narrators over the past few years that I have really enjoyed. Yeah, she's she's wonderful. And I, I always love how beautifully she brings my characters to life. I'm, I'm very grateful. Yeah, she does an amazing job. So we are running a little bit close here to the end. So I want to wind down by asking you um, where listeners can find you online. So my website is chanelclayton.com and I have book club kits and information about all my books there. And then I'm also active on Instagram and Facebook. And I love talking to readers about books and, and writing there. And for your Instagram, I can't remember if I asked you last year, but do you describe your Instagram photos? Um, do you mean like in the, like, uh, the ID tag where it does the description? Like, I don't know if you've seen um, where people will like, you know, have a post and then either in the like alt text or just sometimes in the post itself, they'll say, I think image I have the alt text. I think I have the alt text um, settings set on my, I don't do it in the post, but I think I have the alt text set up. Ah, okay. Because it is definitely a helpful thing, I think, especially with Instagram, but with Facebook as well. Um, I can't tell you how many times I go online and I see these posts that say things like, image may contain outdoors, tree, and sky. And I'm like, um, someone took a picture of the sky? Like, I, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. And as someone who who doesn't see pictures, like, I, I can't see. So all these undescribed posts are just like things that I, I don't, I don't understand. It'll say image may contain text. Like, I'm pretty okay. sure I did. I'm, I'm pretty sure the all the setting is, I don't think I've done it on Facebook because I didn't know, how, I didn't know you could do that on Facebook, but on Instagram, I'm pretty sure I remember the setting where it um, does it for you. Yeah. Even in Facebook, I think um, there's a way to turn on all okay. text I will um, and to, that. you know, to, to put it in there. Um, Because it definitely does. It also makes it easier. Like if people are looking back through your post and they want to search for like a specific thing, you can also, you know, search then through like keywords um, using alt text where if you just have like pictures of things, it's harder sometimes for people to find those posts. No, I really appreciate that. Thank you. I will definitely look at that on my Facebook and I'll double check the Instagram setting. I'm pretty sure I remember setting that up um, on Instagram. So Yes. Yes, I feel like the more people who know about accessibility, the better the the social media experience can be like for everybody. No, absolutely. Thank you so much for for sharing that. Well, as always, it has been such a delight to talk with you. This is, I think, the fourth time that you've been here. I think we missed uh, one since we started in 2019. But it is always fantastic to hear kind of what you're up to and, and what your writing experience was like for whichever book that we're talking about. So thank you so much for joining me once again. No, oh, thank you so much for having me. This is always so wonderful. And I, I said earlier when we were talking backstage that it, it feels like a tradition now. So it's always yes. so special being being on your podcast for the release. And I just really appreciate all of your support. Yes, because you were our very first yes. interview. Yes, yes. Like it was when we left Cuba. I, I always it was. That. Yes. And I think it <laughs> it was actually, was. 
similar to what I'm doing today. I think it was, um, I did like a day of podcasts and I, and I was able to speak with you for that one. So no, it's very yes. special memory. Yes. Well, once again, this has been a discussion with author Chanel Clayton about her novel, The Cuban Heiress, which released in the U.S. on April 11th. All right. So new books. There are a bunch of them this week. It's kind of a typical first Tuesday of the month. Lots of great stuff coming out. So I'm going to start, as I always do, with some books you've heard us mention previously. Um, this time on our most anticipated releases of May episode, which just aired Friday. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, definitely check it out. So two of my most anticipated May releases are out today, and they are Warrior Girl Unearthed by Angeline Boley and Jana Goes Wild by Farah Heron. Stacy is looking forward to the new Annika Sharma, which is Sugar, Sugar, Spice, and Can't Play Nice, Chai Masala Club, book two. That was That's the sequel to Chai and Other Four-Letter Words. What is it? Chai? Love Chai and Other Four-Letter Words that came out um, in 2022. Georgina is looking forward to All the Days of Summer by Nancy Thayer. Kristen is anticipating the new Catherine Cowles, which is called Echoes of You. This is Lost and Found, book two. And Natalia is excited for the new Samantha Young, which is the start to a new trilogy by her. This is called The Highlands. And the book itself is called Beyond the Thistles. Brooke has a couple books coming out this week that she's excited about. They are Four Found Dead by Natalie D. Richards and Lying in the Deep by Diana Urban. That might be the most um, repeats I've had for an episode. All right. So what about some books that we haven't talked about before? Well, I have some of those for you, too. Um, we have Out of the Ashes by Kara Thomas, which is a young adult thriller. Um, she's kind of in line with Diana Urban and Natalie D. Richards, the twisty psychological thriller um, for young adults, featuring smart, spunky teenage leads. Um, she's written quite a few both under her name and also under a pen name. So if you've never read any Kara Thomas, um, that might be something to give a look to. And this is Out of the Ashes. And again, it's by Kara Thomas. We also have a new Laura Hankin novel. She wrote Happy and You Know It and A Special Place for Women. And this week, her third book, The Daydreams, is out. This is the story of four teens who were stars of a big TV show. Uh, this kind of went off the rails during a live special. And now 13 years later, they're back for a reunion. And you get to learn all kinds of secrets. Um, it is a great book. I had a chance to read an early copy and I loved it so incredibly much. So this is The Daydreams by Laura Hankin. 
we have a new Sarah Morgan book. This is Summer Wedding. It's a family wedding and, of course, a summer of secrets. Stacy, Sarah, and Natalia have all read and enjoyed Sarah Morgan in the past. So this might be a good kind of beach read um, if you're looking for such a thing. If not right now, maybe, you know, as uh, summer heats up. That is Summer Wedding by Sarah Morgan. Sticking with the summer theme here, we have Summer on Sag Harbor. This is the second book in Sunny Hostin's Summer Beach series. Um, Kristen talked about the first book in the series last year on one of our episodes. And um, Hostin has also written a memoir. So these are things that are on my TBR pile, and I will definitely be adding Summer on Sag Harbor as well. Again, that is Summer Beach, book two, and it's by Sunny Hostin. We also have Love Buzz by Neely Tubati Alexander. This is a debut novel about self-discovery. Um, there's also some romance in it. A woman meets the guy that she's pretty sure is the man of her dreams in New Orleans. And then they are separated for a while before they can actually claim their happily ever after. So this is Love Buzz by Neely Tubati Alexander. And Carly Fortune is releasing her second novel. This is Meet Me at the Lake. It is another uh, contemporary romance, kind of a, a new adult um, age range, it looks like, like, you know, just college age, discovering that deep love that so many people are familiar with in college. Um, Carly wrote Every Summer After last year, which did really, really well. And so I'm eager to see how her second book is received. This is Meet Me at the Lake by Carly Fortune. Sarah Adams is releasing another kind of small town romance. This is Practice Makes Perfect. And it's a kind of opposite attract, like I said, set in a small town. We have this small town sweetheart who meets a bad boy and they have amazing chemistry. Sarah Adams is an author that I've been interested in checking out for a while. Um, she wrote... A book called When in Rome, also The Cheat Sheet. I think The Cheat Sheet is a little bit more of a sports romance than I'm always in the mood for, but um, still, I've heard really good things about her writing, so she's someone that I'm interested in checking out. This week's book, though, is Practice Makes Perfect by Sarah Adams. And we, of course, have some fantasy because there's lots of great fantasy that comes out all the time and I'm always very excited to talk about it. Ghostly Game. This is Ghost Walkers number 19 by Christine Fian. I read some of Fian's early work and I really enjoyed it back in the day. I haven't read any in quite a while, but I'm so glad to know that she continues to write because she is kind of one of the um pioneers of paranormal romance you know back before it was the really cool genre to write um, Christine Fian and Sherilyn Kenyon were blazing that path for us so this is Ghostly Game 
Ghost Walkers, number 19, by Christine Fien. We also have a new series from author Lilith St. Crow. This is Springs Arcana, and it's Dead God's Heart, book one. And again, this is by Lilith St. Crow. It is the story of a woman who enters a terrifying new world in order to save her mother from cancer. There is a winter goddess who's kind of at the helm, and I can't tell if she is benevolent or unkind, but if you want to know more, you'll have to check it out. It is Spring's Arcana, Dead God's Heart, book one by Lilith St. Crow. Amy Kaufman has a new book, which is the start to a new series. This is The Isle of the Gods, and it's book one in the series with the same title. Amy Kaufman has co-written a bunch of stuff with authors like Jay Kristoff and Megan Spooner. Some of it is young adult fantasy. Some of it is science fiction. Either way, it is definitely worth your time. This is Isle of the Gods, Isle of the Gods, book one by Amy Kaufman. Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros. This is the first book in the Empyrean series. And this is one that caught my attention a few months ago when I was looking at upcoming releases. It is um, YA fantasy featuring dragon riders. Um, and I kind of got my fantasy start. I guess it's in Anne McCaffrey's case, it was more sort of science fiction, but um, I read her Dragon Riders of Pern series. And so whenever I see a series that features Dragon Riders, it always kind of takes me back to that nostalgia of early Anne McCaffrey. So this is one that I will definitely be reading. It is Fourth Wing, Empyrean, book one by Rebecca Yaros. I also want to talk about a few historical books. Um, before I end today. So Amanda Quick is releasing The Bride War White. This is her Burning Cove, California series. It's the seventh book. And Stacy and I were just having a text conversation earlier this evening about Amanda Quick and how she's one of those authors that we both read voraciously, you know, 15 or 20 years ago and haven't picked up in a while. But for both of us, her Burning Cove series, which is set in 1930s era Hollywood, is one that has caught our attention and especially this seventh release. So this is The Bride War White, Burning Cove, California, book seven by Amanda Quick. We also have Swan Light. This is by Phoebe Rowe. And this is an author that I've not heard of before, but I was intrigued by the blurb when I read it um, not too long ago. This is the story of two people who are separated by literally a century. They're connected through family and a very, very important and mysterious lighthouse. This is Swan Light by Phoebe Rowe. And lastly, I want to give a shout out to The Secret Book of Flora Lee by Patty Callahan Henry. This is a World War II era novel. And Patty Callahan Henry has written a couple of 
really cool historical novels. Um, one is about the wife of C.S. Lewis, and the other is about a shipwreck that took place in Savannah. But this one takes place right around World War II, I think maybe a little bit after. I think there are parts of this book that go into a little bit of like the post-war period. But this is The Secret Book of Flora Lee by Patty Callahan Henry. And those, my friends, are this week's new books. I hope all of you are doing well as we move into May. Um, it is still very, very cold and rainy in my part of the world. My grandmother informed me that we might even get some snow showers tomorrow um, on May 2nd. So I'm not quite sure what I think of that. But I hope that in other parts of the country or the world, you are enjoying nicer weather staying well, and of course, keeping yourselves well-read. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, it kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.